Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Back with you. After a couple days in Chicago. Thought about doing White Sox Plus. That team is hard to watch. Nice stadium. Not great food recommendations from our guests that we had last week. Not that I, uh, not that I didn't eat all weekend. Saw a little forbidden door. A little White Sox game. Some art. It was fun, but I'm back. And uh, nothing happened with the Jays until yesterday. I, I don't, no memory of anything that happened Saturday or Sunday. I, I was out of town. Those games don't count. They're not in the standings. Uh, the Jays win yesterday. They bounce back 7-2 series opener against the Red Sox. A monster Kevin Gosman performance. Home runs for George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Matt Chapman. They do it again tonight. Ross Stripling, Michael Walker. 7.07 first pitch with Ben Wagner on the Sportsnet Radio Network. We have a fun show today. Chris Black's going to join me momentarily, as he does every Tuesday. We have Britt Giroli later, Kayla McGrath, and we got a giveaway a little later in the show. I'll prompt you to text in at that point, but you could text in anyway uh, before then. 590-590. Give us your name and location. Send in questions. Send in thoughts. It uh, feels like a big series, so... I'm all ears on your questions, on your takes. Uh, we have a Raptors question in the text line. Uh, uh, I will not do those. I'll save those for the Will Lou show. Um, the Jays win last night, 7-2. Kevin Gosman strikes out 10 over seven innings. And I'm looking at it, trying to explain to a friend what was different for Gosman. And this friend was not a, is not a big baseball fan. Um, and the up and down nature of starting pitchers uh, was a little confusing to him. So, you know, Barrios loses his curveball spin or his fastball command one game, or Kikuchi gets away from the fastball and doesn't trust it and can't locate it early. Um, or Gosman's a little up and down. And I'm explaining it to him. I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just wait? Tell you to tune in at 3.03 tomorrow. And we'll explain it black. Numbers without context mean nothing. You cannot walk a lot of guys and have poor command. They can differentiate themselves from every other team in baseball if they lean into this. I fully agree that this is an advantage for them. Obviously, small sample size. It's alarm bells, red flag, whatever you want to call it. I'd love to see the metrics on that as well. Oh, that slider broke seven inches. Is that good? I don't know. I need you to explain it. Explain it. Explain it. Explain it, Chris Black. Chris Black, Sportsnet producer, coming to us live from the radio booth down at Rogers Center. Chris, how are you, buddy? I'm intimidated. I'm in a radio booth. There are just legends around me. Ben Wagner's to my right prepping. Tom Young behind me. Ben Ennis is around. There's just a lot of people who, who know a lot more about radio than I do. And I'm just sitting here trying not to make a fool out of myself. But do they know as much about nerd stats and little graphics as you do? They don't have intros. They don't have radio intros. I've got that going for me. So that Derek's intro has given me the burst of confidence that I need to get through this segment. Absolutely. Glad to hear it. Um, Something that didn't give you a burst over the weekend, you you couldn't get your snacks at the movie theater? What's going on? What's going on with the movie Uh, theater analytics here? How do we make this more efficient? You become a complain about lines on Twitter guy. We got to resolve this. People who follow me on Twitter know it's three things. It's stats, 
It's a mix of left-leaning politics, and it's complaining to big corporations about things. So, listen, when you bring six children to a movie theater, you're going to find a way to complain about something. I was one adult with many, many children. I was the, I was the good guy bringing a bunch of kids to let some other parents have a quiet afternoon. So, yeah, I complained, and then I got rid of it. I felt bad after, so, yeah. I, you know. Let me spin this for you, though. Um, I'm not a parent, so maybe this is... And I don't know how old these kids were, but the opportunity to go get snacks seems like a reprieve. Like, like you get the six kids situated in the movie theater and then you go get snacks and it's a break from the kids for you. Yeah, except when they put their hands on every single thing by the front as like everybody else looks at you in horror. Ah. Like keep get, get control of those kids. So I was that guy. Unbelievable. Uh, all right. So not good at wrangling six kids at once at the Correct. movie theater. But good at wrangling six thoughts and six stats from uh, across the uh, the time I was off. Four, I, I didn't have four days. Uh, didn't have the show for the last four days. So um, obviously I was keeping up. I watched last night's game once my flight landed and everything. Um, but I want to go through some of the stories from the last couple days with you, particularly as it pertains to starting pitching. Because you were so negative about your movie theater experience, let's start off positive here. <laughs> Kevin Gosman, seven innings, zero earned, 10 strikeouts, 10 whiffs on the fastball alone, and 18 overall. What did you see from Gosman yesterday that I, I'm assuming has you feeling pretty good about where he's at? Yeah, let's go big picture on Gosman for a second. Like, there's been so much focus, so much talk about. Is he tipping? Uh, are we shifting too much behind him? So many discussions where... Like, if you look big picture at his stuff, um, we talked, um, the fastball was always good. The splitter was always good. The stuff, the velocity, the movement, nothing was wrong with all that. So I always thought there was a bit of bad luck going on when it, with his two poor results. And last night was just a continuation of that. Like, the stuff was good, but he got good results. Um, you mentioned the 10 whiffs on the fastball. That's what stood out to me that he could have thrown his fastball even more last night and had even more success. He It was that good. He, he was throwing it, locating it wherever he wanted, and he was dominant just with his fastball. He didn't even need to mess around as much with the splitter or the slider. I, I do think there was some elements. I think they recognized, both he and Alejandro Kirk, realized that some Red Sox were probably sitting or thinking splitter, especially late in counts, and they just they rode the fastball. So really happy, really kind of encouraged that kind of he's back to normal and that the results are kind of following the quality of his stuff again. That fastball was something he threw all over the zone yesterday. The, mm -hmm. the pitch chart is just like you had no idea where this thing was going. Uh, the splitter, I don't know. I thought he had some trouble locating it still. He was just missing a little too far out of the zone low, and, and he was like he had in, in that one bad start uh, a couple weeks ago, a lot of inside stuff, a lot of missing inside. Uh, but the fastball played so well, it didn't really matter that much. Um, it was heavier fastball usage than normal, but not significantly so. He's thrown the fastball 49% of the time this year. I think it was around 55% yesterday. So when you look at that, Chris, that method is... It, like should be repeatable for him. A hundred percent. I just, he knows, he knows his stuff better than anyone. I really enjoyed his interview um, with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt last week. Um, 
where just listening to him talk about pitching, he's just got a really good understanding of what makes him successful on what might be happening when he's not having success. He seems like a really bright guy. And I, I just, I think we, I think the, the interesting part about covering baseball on a day-to-day basis, especially with all the numbers we have now, is after one start, you can kind of freak out about things <laughs> sometimes. And I think what this has kind of shown us is like, yeah, you know what? Especially with the guy with a splitter is just kind of a, I don't want to say, it's just a, it's a little bit of a different pitch. Not, I wasn't going to say niche, but like it's just, I think you are going to have weird days sometimes with it. And that will just kind of, that are just inevitable. And I think, but more than, more often than not, he's going to be really good. And that's what kind of the stuff metrics and Eno Saris' stuff has always said. The stuff will play. He'll be one of the top, you know, 10, 20 pitchers in baseball this year. It's certainly looking that way again. And I know last week with, with you and with Joe Siddle, we kind of bounced around a couple of ways in which his recent starts could just be poor fortune. And I think, again, you just laid out the case why that was probably accurate. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the interview he did on Fan Drive Time as well. I want to play a clip from that um, because we talked a lot about shifting last Tuesday. And there was... There's been some interesting stuff since. So this was Kevin Gosman uh, explaining on Fan Drive Time why the Jays didn't shift much behind him. Not this start, but the start prior. That's always a touchy subject, you know, um, especially, you know, you talk to the outfield coach, you talk to the infield coach, like they're doing more research on these guys than we are. You know, like we're, we're our homework is on how do we get these guys out, you know, not where's, where's should Chapman be playing on a one-two pitch, you know, and but that's their job, and that's what they do. And so, you know, it's unfortunate the shift. You usually only notice the negative things, you know, and you don't notice the line drives that are right at somebody. Um, you know, you, you just kind of forget those things for whatever reason. You know, you only notice and remember the times when, you know, a single turned into a double and they scored a run, you know. And um, it's unfortunate, but that's something where you just got to keep the – you know, communication going back and forth. And, you know, before my game in Chicago, it was like, hey, these guys are doing a really good job of beating the shift, you know, the first game. And so it's like, I was just kind of like, let's just go play baseball. Let's just go play straight up and let's see what happens, you know. And, um, I mean, the first play of the game, Flatty made a diving play, you know. I don't know if he's in there if we don't, if I don't say that before the game. So, you know, those are little things that you look at, but, you know, there was also maybe a couple times where I could have had an out, you know, where I gave up a base hit. And so it's like, you know, it's it's just a tough situation and, and it's there's no, like, right or wrong answer. Um, it's really just, like, dependent on if it's working and, and if it's not, you know. And um, It's unfortunate that it's like that, but that's kind of what the game has come to. So that was Kevin Gosman on the fan drive time on Friday, speaking about the Jays going from heavily shifting. He had been shifted, uh, or the Jays had shifted rather, on 67.7% of Kevin Gosman's pitches, according to Baseball Savant. Um, different sites have different ways of classifying shift. Baseball Savant, I believe, is um, pretty binary in, in terms of yes, no, where some other places might uh, have a different line for what a shift is. But 67.7%. Up to that start, Gosman asks them, let's just play it straight up. They shift for 0% of his pitches in that one. And Chris, yesterday, 
it's back to 23.6%. Obviously more than zero, but very, very low in general. Do you think this is something they, they stick with? Do they inch back up from here? Uh, what is your reading uh, of the shift usage in yesterday's start? Yeah, I think the White Sox game was unique because there were eight or nine righties in the in the lineup. And from our conversation last week, we talked about that, especially against righties. Righties are more likely to hit the ball the other way against them. That that's kind of the numbers that I dove into last week. So I think that that made sense, even though a fun thing on Twitter uh, during that White Sox game was some people getting so upset about they're saying they're not shifting, but I could see like there was, yes, the second baseman is still positioning himself in a different way, but yes, technically he was on the right side of second base, so it wasn't a shift. So you can get into some levels of uh, shades of gray on that. Um, but I think, yeah, last last night there's more there's a few more people who are more natural to shift against jackie bradley jr for sure uh rafael devers for sure but for, uh, for example there was one bobby dalbeck i think he's still someone who the league as a whole doesn't shift a ton against so they might have seen something in that matchup to uh to make them think to shift uh, behind gossman but i just think it's going to be yes where it really makes sense they're still going to do it but um they're also going to take pitching their pitchers kind of mindset uh, into this. So I think, I think it's going to be less going forward for sure. It was six plate appearances yesterday. So six as a whole over the last two games, whereas it was, you know, averaging like probably 12, 15 or so somewhere in that range per game. So it's drastically down. I think it's going to be somewhere in the single digits for Gossman going forward. That's interesting. So I want to, I want to use the shift talk as a pivot here to get back more in your wheelhouse of being negative. So Jose Barrios has Jose Barrios has continued to struggle. Um, he is the Jays' most heavily shifted starting pitcher and second overall in the entire majors behind Clayton Kershaw. I don't want to do a one size fits all because part of what we discussed with Kevin about Kevin Gosman last week was that heavily shifting everyone might not suit everyone. Um, so heavily shifting Kevin Gosman, if he's not a heavy shift guy, maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm not saying that Gosman's recent results should have you then stop shifting for Jose Barrios, but do you see anything similar in their ups and downs in terms of how balls have dropped in, how the defense has played behind them? For Barrios, what I see is actually just when he's bad, the contact is hard. It's not, we're not talking about ground balls getting through holes. We're talking about balls off the wall. We're talking about home runs, which he's had a problem with. Um, so to be honest, I haven't dove into the shift stuff with him, but what I've seen from him is that just when he's bad, it just tends to be really bad. Now, having said that, I skew positive with him. <laughs> uh, whereas with, I, I just think he's given them a really good chance to win in nine of his 15 starts. It just so happens that when he's been bad, he's been very, very bad. Um, and that's just kind of rare that you don't usually see people blow up to that extent um, in all their bad starts kind of thing. So I like the way I was talking to somebody, I was talking to um, somebody about this yesterday. I would rather give me a guy like Brios, who can be very good in 55, 60% of his starts and then kind of really bad in 30 to 40%, whatever. 
if he's giving me a chance to win in 60%, I'll take that. So it's just kind of, I think it's been, I think it's been a little bit, not, you can't say unlucky in terms of the, the kind of, the hits have been hard. They've been home runs. So it's not bad luck in terms of balls finding holes. It's just bad luck in terms of his days when they've been bad. They've just happened to be very, very bad. But I, I still think he's a quality pitcher. I think he's going to get this turned around. So that is me, Blake Murphy, skewing positive. I can't believe it. I, look at what look at what we've done to you. Uh, this is uh, I'm going to take a little bit of credit for helping guide you along there, or, or not guide, but bait you into being positive by setting you up as so negative. Um, you mentioned that in nine, I think it was nine of his 16 starts or, or something like that, that he's given the Jays a good chance to win. Um, I look at a guy like you say Kikuchi in contrast, and he's had an average game score higher just five times this year based on baseball references metric. Not a perfect metric, but really that that's a, hey, five times Kikuchi has outperformed an average pitcher. So you, you'd hope you have a, a chance in that one. His average start has been a below average. And, and we're now looking at a couple in a row here. Um, I don't bring this up to, to necessarily do a, a whip around the entire starting rotation, but I know, Chris, that some of the talk has been well what do you do about this it's a three-year plan um, but can you keep trotting him out every fifth day and the natural thing some people have brought up is maybe you need to move him to a bullpen for a bit and I know that you don't see the value in that so just wanted to to give you the window for why Kikuchi moving to the bullpen uh, makes so little sense to you yeah to me this is a again one of those one of those watching every day kind of thing and reacting to every day where they they've got him signed for two more years after this one um at you know uh eight figure salary um this isn't tanner Roark. his stuff is better than that this isn't a guy who's run out of bullets this is a guy who's struggling to command right now so and the thing is, if you if you if you've got a guy who's struggling to command, putting him into the bullpen into a role that he's never done in the major leagues, that isn't going to fix him, and that that isn't going to lend itself to good bullpen work either. If it, if it's a guy who's struggling to work on his fastball command, to me, the value in Yusei Kikuchi lies in figuring out how to get him good in the rotation again. And as long as you've got a lefty who's got a 95, 96, 97 mile an hour fastball with a really good changeup, with a good breaking ball, you're not putting that guy in the bullpen. So I understand the frustration. Um, I understand what I'm reading on Twitter every day when Kikuchi's pitching these days, but I I think the bullpen's a knee-jerk thing, and I, I just I don't see the value. Yes, they're struggling for arms in the bullpen, um, but it's not the solution isn't putting Yusei Kikuchi back there. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, you you made a compelling case there with the fastball command. Results-wise, he just doesn't scream bullpen option. And and maybe if he could simplify the the mix and, and just focus on two pitches or something like that, maybe the numbers improve, but that doesn't help him get back to being an effective starter. You look, and it's the first inning where he's given up most of the damage, and that's, you know, the first inning, the first time through the order is when he, what he would be doing out of the bullpen Usually a guy is more a candidate to move to the bullpen if it's, okay, second time they get to see you, uh, they're knocking you around. Or you only have two pitches and it's just too much to, you know, three, four, five innings is too much. So I'm with you. The other thing is as thin as the bullpen is right now, uh, not exactly a lot of names knocking on the door from AAA. We saw Plata Max Castillo uh, with a nice appearance 
over the weekend, but we also saw him get hit pretty hard in his first outing. Um, he's not a guy with a lot of prospect pedigree or like a flashing sign of why things moved in the right direction for him this year. You know, he made some some routine changes, some body changes, things like that, and his velocity was up a little bit, um, but he doesn't have, you know, he has kind of 40-man depth profile uh, there. So that's the other thing is you don't have um, the guys behind him, and you've already moved your sixth starter into the rotation in Ross Stripling uh, because Hyunjin Ryu is out for the season. Having said, or uh, that's notable because Ross Stripling's on the hill tonight. Uh, he has continued to roll. He has terrific numbers as a starter. 281 ERA as a starter this year with the component metrics to back it up. Elite walk rate, elite chase percentage, despite not having traditionally swing and miss stuff. Chris, what is it that makes Stripling so effective um, in terms of not just getting those chase swings, but just keeping guys off balance in general? Yeah, off balance is the key term there. I think what I've really kind of started to enjoy watching from him is how he's almost defying scouting reports or defying what hitters are used to or getting used to in terms of how major league pitchers attack them. Um, the typical the typical mix or the typical is a righty. Uh, if a righty's facing a righty, he's going to get ready for fastballs and breaking balls. If a right, if it's a lefty hitter, he's going to get ready for, he's going to expect fastballs and change-ups from Stripling. And what he's done this month is he's kind of become unpredictable that he'll throw either a fastball, a breaking ball, or a change-up almost equally as likely no matter what the count is, no matter what is, where he's almost, he's between 20 and 40% on each three of those types of pitches this month, fastball, breaking ball, off speed. And it's just, he's really unpredictable. And for a guy who just, um, when you listen to him speak, uh, if you read his quotes uh, in in articles, he just comes off as a really smart guy. And I, I think this is by design. I haven't spoken to him personally, but it just seems like something where, Maybe guys are getting so good at scouting reports, so good at knowing what pitchers usually do, that getting a little bit unpredictable can have really good results. So when you throw five pitches and you throw them to uh, a number of different spots, you basically can look at that as, well, okay, you have, let's say, 15 pitch plus location mixes. Over the course of a six-pitch plate appearance – those could come in in over 15,000 different combinations. Um, when you have that many options and you have the, the faith in your stuff and the control to do it, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Do you worry at all? And I know we, he didn't have the, the best of starts uh, against the Yankees necessarily. Um, do you worry at all that a lower fastball usage, like can, can good hitting teams catch up with this a little bit? Well, that's the one caveat about his June numbers, which have been unbelievably good. I think he's got the third best ERA with any pitcher over 20 innings in June. It's 1.15 or 1.16, something like that. Um, what you are mildly concerned with, or not concerned, but something to consider going forward, is that all but one of those starts or appearances have come against AL Central teams. Um, and the one start against the Yankees, he wasn't great. And so I think this will be a good test for him today against Boston. A uh, bunch of really good hitters, a couple of really good lefty hitters. Um, this will be a challenge. But he's been great against lefties this month. I believe, uh, let me just pull it up. 
Yeah, two for 25. Lefties oh. are hitting like sub 100 against him. So crazy. he's been crazy good against lefties. He's been crazy good against everyone, but this will be a really good test for him. A little bit of news here for you, Chris. I know you can see down to the field, but where you're sitting, you don't have a great look into the bullpen. Sergio Romo throwing in there right now. I can see him right now. I leave the news breaking stuff to Hazel May and people like that, um, but I can see him. Um, so I'm sure there'll be an official release coming at some point, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Miss Hazel May will have more on that later tonight for sure. Yes, uh, and I mean you you are free to to break that stuff, but I have a. I'm in the studio and I have a screen here that just kind of rotates between like, I I think it's on the same feed that Ben Wagner uses for uh, away games. And yeah, I just, I looked up and I'm like, Oh, there's a big bearded tattooed guy (laughs) warming up in the bullpen. What's going on? Uh, Sergio Romo is here. Uh, Chris, I know I got to let you go here. One more quick one for you. Alejandro Kirk now up to eighth in baseball in weighted runs created plus. Not eighth for catchers, not eighth in the American League, eighth in the entire league, all position players. This looks like something that's going to last. Maybe not at this level, like we're putting up Buster Posey uh, MVP season numbers here. So even if it comes down to earth a little bit, though, you've noticed uh, an impact on the guys around him in the order since Charlie Montoya elevated him to the fourth spot. Yeah, a couple of quick little things with Kirk. One, he's giving Vladdy more pitches to hit. Like, we're not talking a huge percentage, but in baseball, every little percentage point helps. So he's Vladdy seeing more pitches in the strike zone and over the heart of the plate since Kirk has moved to the cleanup spot. So that's point number one. Point number two, Teoscar is seeing more guys on base. And I also think the from a non-quantitative thing, I think moving Teoscar down is a little bit of a motivational thing for him. Um, I think it was merited just from Kirk's uh, play, but I think I think it's motivated Teoscar a little bit as well. And to me, the one thing I want to leave for your listeners is just to put in perspective how good Kirk has been, this level of on-base he's been getting for the last whatever kind of span you want to use, 20 games, 30 games, 40 games. Over the last 10 years of Blue Jays baseball, we're talking three guys who've been better than him in terms of getting on base at this high of a clip. Vladdy Jr., Josh Donaldson, and Jose Bautista. That's it. Like, he's close to 500 on base for over an extended stretch. We're talking two, three, four, five weeks. Like, so this is a crazy level of play that we're seeing from him right now. And just enjoy the ride. It's It's been awesome. And we, you might not get to see him today. We don't have a lineup yet. Uh, but he's played four days in a row. Gabriel Moreno has generally caught Ross Stripling. Um, I don't know. I, I guess the only other thing to ask about Alejandro Kirk, Chris, and maybe it's more of a question for when Danny Jansen gets back, do we see him start taking even more DH days so that he doesn't have to take off days? If he keeps hitting like this, he's got to be in your lineup as much as, you know, their performance department allows. Um, it's He's got to get, you know, whether it's three games catching a week and three games DH, something like that. But as long as the bat keeps hitting like this, we're talking this is a top five bat in baseball right now. It sure is. And he's going to start the All-Star game, it sure looks like, and it'll be well-deserved. Uh, Chris Black. Thanks so much for taking the time today, buddy. Uh, enjoy your last few moments here in the radio booth. Uh, you did great. I'm sure Ben Wagner is going to give you a big old pat on the back as you get off here. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for having me, Blake. That's Chris Black, Sportsnet producer. You can follow him at Down to Black on Twitter. Always a great 
resource for statsy information, but the video to back it up, the the insight from a Joe Siddle or, or from the other people, um, you know, former players and things like that around the Jays. Uh, Chris Black, elite synthesizer of information, uh, a term I like to use for the type of people who take in all those different perspectives and kind of spit it all out in a digestible way. Uh, again, I mentioned with Chris there, Sergio Romo is at the Rogers Center. Having a little bullpen, having a big old smile on his face for Hazel May. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that over the rest of Jay's Talk Plus and see if Sergio Romo is going to be active for tonight or if he's just around saying hello. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for the lineup as well. Reminder, it's Ross Stripling against Michael Walker tonight. And first pitch goes at 7.07. Ben Wagner will have the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, start sending in some texts. We're going to answer a few of them after the break. Uh, 590-590, or you can tweet them to me at Blake Murphy ODC and stick around with us. We've got Britt Giroli and Caitlin McGrath in the four o'clock hour. And I don't know, sometime in the next 20 minutes or so, I might give away some stuff. Stick around and text us 590-590. Jay's Talk Plus continues after this on Sports at 590, the fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. As I do sometimes, I try to pick songs once in a while from artists from the town that the Jays are playing against. I was thinking to myself, who's the best rapper from Boston or the Boston area? It's a little John Cena for you. On the more serious side, we got lineups for you. The Toronto Blue Jays. Lining up like this, and I have some bad news after our conversation with Chris Black there. No Alejandro Kirk. He played four days in a row, started four days in a row. He'll get the day off today. George Springer leads off, and we'll get a DH day. Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Teoscar Hernandez back in the fourth spot with Kirk out for the day. Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Matt Chapman, Santiago Espinal, Gabriel Moreno hits eighth and catches Ross Stripling. Brian Altapia takes on the center field duties, and hits ninth. So only one lefty in there against Michael Waka. Your bench will be Biggio, Collins, Kirk, and Zimmer. <laughs> one day Zimmer's not going to be on the roster, and when I run through the bench, uh, I'm going to be like, man, who was it that I would always forget to say and then say at the last second? But yeah, there's a toppy in center field. Zimmer will get a little pinch, pinch fielding, a little fielding replacement uh, duty at some point tonight, if the game's going well. Uh, I also mentioned earlier, no official roster update yet, but I have a, a camera into the bullpen here in the studio. Sergio Romo is throwing a bullpen right now as Jose Barrios and a number of Jays coaches watch on. So that seems to be, he's probably throwing enough pitches now, actually, that uh, I do wonder if he's not getting activated until later in the week because he's, uh, he's got a good sweat going here. Uh, either way, Sergio Romo, Bullpen reinforcement sometime soon for the Jays. Uh, that's the lineup that's going up against Michael Walker tonight. Here's how the Red Sox line up against Ross Stripling. Rob Refsnyder leads off in center field. Raphael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, Alex Verdugo, Trevor Story, Christian Vasquez, Franchi Cordero, and Christian Arroyo. 
Not the not the deadliest of lineups by feel. That's a Red Sox team that just keeps finding ways to get it done, though. So Ross Tripling has a tough one ahead of him tonight. Uh, Devers, Bogarts, Martinez, obviously a deadly middle of the order there. Ref Snyder, it's been something else over 12 games, hitting 364. I don't know how much I believe in that long term, but it's there and uh, it's happening. Trevor Story, uh, less so down in the six hole with an OPS of just 709. And yeah, 709 early in the season would have actually been quite good. But the league has caught up. The league has warmed up and 709 no longer any good. It's good for a 95 WRC plus. So about 5% below league average. Trevor Story not quite delivering just yet, um, but you'd expect him to be better with more sample. You'd expect Verdugo to be better uh, over time as well. Jaron Duran uh, hit the restricted list yesterday. Not here for uh, vaccination reasons. If I were a top prospect looking to get my first bit of extended playing time in the major leagues, I'd maybe handle that differently, but what do I know? Never been a prospect like that. So those are your lineups for today. There's also a little bit of news from our pal Shai Davidi earlier. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has declined an invitation to participate in the home run derby this year. He obviously has had a legendary home run derby performance in the past. Uh, he opted not to last year as a matter of load management. This year, it's concerned for the wrist injury he missed the May 29th game with. Uh, this is Vlad via translator in Shai's piece. I think the wrist is something that I'm going to have to manage for the rest of my career. So I just want to make sure that I keep doing all my exercises and everything that I have to do to keep it healthy. If that worries you, the I think it's something I'm going to have to manage for the rest of my career. Uh, there's also this. My wrist is fine right now, but I've got to be careful. There are too many swings in a home run derby. I don't want to take a chance that my wrist gets hurt again and it gets bad and I won't be able to help the team win, which is what we're trying to do here. I don't want to risk it. So uh, risk avoidance there, which is understandable. I don't know. I think also there's an element of once you do the home run derby and you hit 91 home runs or whatever it was and don't win, maybe you're not super eager to try to get that title. Uh, the format should reward your 91 home runs. No disrespect to Pete Alonso, who won that one. We've got a couple texts in the text line here. You can keep those coming to 590-590. Perk those ears up, because we're going to give something away in a minute here, too. And sign your text line text so we can shout you out. Clayton from PEI. Ooh, East Coast, let's go. Ask, can we just acknowledge how hilarious Santiago Espinal's Dan Schulman impersonation is in that TV commercial? Yes. It is easily the best one of any of the players in that commercial. It's very, very funny. Uh, I would never in a million years try to do a Dan Schulman impersonation because I like my job and uh, I respect him too much to do a terrible, terrible impression. But Espinal's is great. I really enjoy it. Someone else asks, and I... I wouldn't bring this one up, but I'm actually curious to spin off of it because this is just kind of your, your garden variety unsigned negative text. It just says, when can Montoyo go on an extended summer vacation? 
I understand that when things are going poorly, it's it's easy to to point to a manager. I know that when a bullpen is struggling, it's easy to point to a manager. I'm not a, a Charlie Montoyo apologist. I think he does a great job with uh, a lot of the off the field stuff. I think that the actual responsibility decision to decision that a manager has is is probably less than it has been in the past. There are so many coaches. There's input from the front office. Um, that doesn't mean a manager is infallible. I just, I, when people send texts like this, I, I wish, and to whoever this person is or, or the next person to text in about Montoya, I would like to know the specific areas that frustrate you because that's easier to answer. That's easier to riff off of. That's easier to have a discussion around if it's a certain quirk in his bullpen usage. If it's a certain, you know, one I get sometimes is does Vlad get too many DH days or Springer get too many DH days? And those are ones that are out of his hand. That that's a you know high performance department decision to to load manage guys appro- appropriately and things like that. So that's that question. Uh, if you have Montoya questions in the future, I don't mean this as a criticism. Just it's easier for us to have a discussion if you have specifics about uh, what is bothering you. Chico from Huntsville asks, "What could Tapia and Danny Jansen fetch in terms of an arm or arms?" Danny Jansen would be a pretty notable asset in a trade catchers are scarce he's 27 he's shown some hitting growth uh, he already had a reputation as being a very good game caller i think for the jays to move off of jansen it would have to be i personally probably wouldn't unload from this catching depth unless a solid starter like if it was a package for a solid starter or, or kind of a star level hitter i i don't know that i'm moving any of them for bullpen help Tapia is probably in the territory of being only a neutral to slightly negative asset at his salary. Maybe you can eat some of it. Um, But Tapia for me, I think only gets moved if it's another outfielder inbound. I don't think you're comfortable with Bradley Zimmer's role expanding. Um, So I kind of think Tapia would be, uh, okay, well, give us a a better outfielder and we'll send him back. The, the best case scenario for the Jays in terms of upgrading that outfield spot, though, is you upgrade the fourth outfield spot, Tapia slides into more of a Zimmer-like role, uh, and then you have a little more depth through the outfield altogether. Justin from Edmonton asks, well, first, simple, do the Jays win tonight? I'll say yes. I mean, they're they're favored slightly more than I, I would have expected, actually, Um this is uh, something I noted on the fan morning show today with J.D. Bunkus and Ailish Forfar that uh, since sports gambling, single event sports gambling became legalized in Ontario, I have certainly noticed that there is a Toronto bias in some of the lines. And that's smart from a business perspective. Uh, you have to assume a lot of the people playing are Toronto area or Toronto fans, and they are going to want to bet their team, bet the home team. Um, but that's reflected in the price sometimes. However, I do think tonight's a, a good one. Mike, we'll talk about Michael Walker a little bit more uh, as we get closer to the end of the show and as we get closer to 707 first pitch. He is ripe for negative regression. Justin also asks, when can we expect the Jays to make the next big step, more so than they already are now? I'm not sure if that question is specifically about the young players taking a step forward or just the Jays' front office pushing them to take a step forward. We have Caitlin McGrath on a little later. We're going to talk some trade stuff as we, you know, June is early in baseball, but we're a couple days from July and then it's late. Then you got to make your moves. Uh, This is an important uh, switch over 
Steven Toronto asks if they can send you say, and he, Derek, he wrote out you say in all caps with a little music note. There it is. Can they send him to the minors to get his stuff together? Steven Toronto asks. I don't think so. Not because you, you can't figure out a way to do that. Um, but because who is starting in his place, there's not a lot of starting pitching depth. That's major league ready right now. Um, you've seen Max Castillo, Casey Lawrence, a few other guys come up and down this year and the odd time they perform well. Like some of those guys have given you good innings. Um, Matt Gage is only a one run over nine and two thirds. Max Castillo looked good on the weekend, but you don't have that sixth starter pushing to get the call up. The pitching at AAA has actually been pretty bad. Um, so I don't know that that's a, a super realistic move in terms of staying competitive as Kikuchi f- figures things out. Matt Bowmanville asks if DFAing him is an option. Uh, sure. If you... If you want to do the old Alex Rios thing and just be like, hey, uh, I regret this contract. I wonder if someone else would take it and you DFA him. That's a possibility, but uh, that's a lot of money to eat if it doesn't work out that way. Nate from Stony Creek asks, who are you willing to deal to improve this roster, whether from prospects or major league roster? I think you have to look at everything. I don't, I'm not going to say, you know, or Elvis Martinez got to go to address the bullpen, but the strength of your farm system, and it's not an elite farm system right now, especially if you consider Gabriel Moreno graduated to the majors, but it's a depth farm system. There's a lot of interesting stuff to other teams through the 20s, even into the 30s in terms of uh, your prospect ranking. So it's a case where maybe you don't have a, a guy other teams see as blue chip. If Gabriel Moreno is not available, People are going to catch up on Ricky Tiedemann being a guy. That's that's for damn sure. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. With the way he's rocketing up the the minors and blowing people away, I don't know that you you want to move him necessarily either. But I do think the depth of your organization allows you to either package a couple guys together rather than give one top-end guy or make a couple smaller moves and hope that uh, those moves together push you a little forward. In terms of who off the roster, I mean, if someone wants Zach Collins or Ryan Tapia or Bradley Zimmer, by all means, uh, if that helps you upgrade at a position that's of greater need, then I'm not saying bench depth isn't, isn't important. Not having bad players is really important. And if you downgrade some of those spots to um, quad A guys or, or fringe waiver guys, that's real. But I think the way things are right now, you prioritize bullpen strength. Um, There's just not a lot on the major league roster. I think you'd move off of right now in a trade that makes sense. I I don't think you want to pull from your top nine guys. Um, If, if the organization weren't so committed to him and he, I would be curious what Kevin Biggio could get you a versatile lefty with a high OBP profile who started the hit for power again, but it's almost like a Schrodinger's cat situation where as soon as BGO becomes, has been playing well enough to have trade value, then you don't really want to move him because you look at it. And it's like, Oh yeah, that's what you thought he'd be for this team. A, a you know, kind of ninth, 10th man type who bounces around. All that is to say, you got to look at every way to ex- every path, 
to improving your team. Matt from Markham asks, whoa, voice crack, Blake. Matt from Markham asks, any possibility you think one of the kids from A-Ball gets fast-tracked into the bullpen? I do think that's possible. We spoke to Keith Law last week about Josefer Zulueta. He got the bump. He's coming up. So, uh, not to the majors, I mean, but he's up to double A now. Um, that's uh, that's interesting because Zulueta is a starter down there, but most prospect people project him as a bullpen arm. And he's a little older as a prospect. So he's a guy I could see getting the getting the rush there a little bit. Um, Daryl says, I am not pro or con on Montoyo. Replace him. Okay, who's better option right now? Uh, but on Sunday, why wouldn't the Jays throw position players pitching in that Milwaukee game? I wonder if that's just a case of you don't want to burn you don't want to risk that it's a it's a little bit of a white flag it's a little bit of a putting a position player in a in a situation they're not familiar with um and and i don't know that you especially with an offense like this i don't know that you want to signal to your team that you don't think they can come back from down seven against um a team that you didn't have too too tough a time hitting over the course of the weekend i also think that the the cynical answer to that and the practical answer was they knew they were going to be optioning Jeremy Beasley down anyway, so just have the pitcher eat those innings up. The more interesting question from that game, I think, is at what point with Jose Brios and Yusei Kikuchi, when they have a bad start, if the bullpen's thinned out, do you just make them wear it? And I don't mean that in like an embarrassing way. I mean, ask them to eat the innings. You don't have it today, okay, but you're down big and the bullpen's tired. So if you got to give up 10 over four instead of eight over two, so be it. I'd be interested to see what those conversations are like. Um, The doctor asks if I can announce Kevin Durant to the Raptors. I cannot yet. Yet. We'll see how uh, the rest of things play out. Gavin in Toronto asks, so what could we get for Kirk in a trade? A lot. But we were talking about Kirk and Moreno in like Jose Ramirez type frameworks at the start of the year. The we, the holes the Jays have right now are not move Kirk to fill holes. A fifth starter type, a bullpen arm type. Unless you change your priorities fairly significantly and say reuse out and we're getting you know, seven and a half percent back in insurance next year or whatever it is. And then you swing for a higher upside arm and and slide Kikuchi back to five and stripling back into the bullpen. Then maybe you start discussing one of the catchers, but the biggest area to address right now is the bullpen. And those guys catcher, uh, a good catcher uh, is very valuable. Alejandro Kirk is the eighth best hitter in baseball so far this year. He's going to start the all-star game. It's uh, you don't want to be married to your players. Everyone is touchable except probably Vlad. You got to blow me away to get Alejandro Kirk and even Gabriel Moreno off of this roster. I can try to blow you away now. Are you spending your long week Canada Day weekend in the city? So are the Toronto Blue Jays. You could celebrate Canada Day by cheering on Canada's team at the ballpark all weekend, featuring a very rare 
split doubleheader Saturday against division rival Tampa Bay Rays. We're giving away two awesome Jays prize packs today and tomorrow. They include awesome Jays merch and four tickets to see Saturday's 6 p.m. game. All you have to do is text the code word to 590-590 to be entered for a chance to win. Again, Jays March, four tickets to Saturday's 6 p.m. game against the Tampa Bay Rays. Text the code word to 590-590. Today's code word is Rays, as in the Tampa Bay Rays, not, oh, Blake deserves a raise. If you start texting that into the text line, uh, I don't know. Maybe I should have told you guys it was the other version of Rays and people just uh, be texting that. But no, Rays. R-A-Y-S, text at the 590-590. You're entered for a chance to win four tickets and Jays merch to Saturday's 6 p.m. game. I can't wait for a five-game, four-day series against the Tampa Bay Rays. I think it's going to be such a fun little curiosity, a little weird thing. And we want to send you. That's today's code word. We'll do it again tomorrow. So tune in tomorrow if you miss out today. I hope that you guys win it you can't all win it but oh thank you to the people now just texting in that i deserve a tampa bay raise good stuff good stuff um we're gonna take a break when we come back rich Aroli, senior mlb writer at the athletic is going to join us we're gonna have caitlin mcgrath after that uh, she had a great piece on the yusei kikuchi conundrum at the athletic uh over the weekend She's also got a big feature coming tomorrow on one of your most beloved Blue Jays. Maybe she'll she'll tip us off and give a little on that. We're also going to try and get her to announce it as officially trade season. And we'll continue teeing up uh, tonight's game. Again, no Alejandro Kirk tonight after playing the last four days. Gabriel Moreno catches Ross Stripling. George Springer gets the DH day. And Rymel Tapia takes center field. Otherwise, it's uh, what you expect as the Jays take on the Red Sox. We'll talk to Britt. We'll talk to Caitlin. We'll talk about why Michael Walker is primed for some negative regression. That's all next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Great daily gambling advice from JD, Blake, and Alish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Matt Gage story is fascinating. It's, uh, it's one of those stories that, no exaggeration, really hooks you in as a sports fan. Because, yeah, the, the games are really important to you. And the community around winning teams or commiserating around losing teams is also important. But it's stories like Matt Gage's that help sports resonate just beyond the field or beyond the wins and losses. Rich Aroli had an awesome feature on Matt Gage up at The Athletic over the weekend, or Friday, I believe, uh, called Blue Jays 29-year-old rookie Matt Gage is finally living his big league dream. A terrific read. Recommend everyone go read that if you haven't yet. Joining us now to talk about Matt Gage... Senior MLB writer at The Athletic, TV analyst, radio host, everything else under the sun. Britt, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Got to ask, 
I think we're around the same age. So Matt Gage coming out to Lincoln Park, that a big factor in you choosing to tell the Matt Gage story? <laughs> well, it definitely reminds me of high school. So no, does, that, <laughs> does that date me too much? No, that puts us around the same age, I think. All right. We're great. Uh, um, so you, you write this terrific Matt Gage feature. Um, and again, I, I recommend anyone go uh, read it about his path from Siena College to um, all over the, the majors and minors and uh, independent ball. Britt, what did you learn about Matt Gage, the person, in reporting this out? Uh, so much. I think when we see these relievers debut and guys who aren't top prospects or big names, most people are just like, eh, whatever. You know, kind of a cool story. Spent a bunch of years in the minors. But for me, what I didn't know going in was how much he took control of his career. Just seeing Lucas Giolito do a different arm action, <laughs> he decided he was going to change everything he knew when it came to pitching. And I don't know how many people would have done that. And I don't know how many people would have continued to stick with it in the Mexican league and independent league and all these other places to get to where he finally got to. So I think it's one thing to say this guy had a tough road. Matt Gage to me had like an unprecedented road to the big leagues. Very unprecedented. And you know, there's so much that goes into, obviously there's so much that goes into anyone making the major leagues, but a 29 year old rookie finally breaking through and you read through your telling of the story and it's just, you know, you'd heard details here and there, or you read one detail and then it's detail after detail where it's like, ah, oh, everything really has to get checked off. Like even the fact that um, his partner Paige is a former collegiate softball player. So is like able to stand in against him or able to catch for him. Um, how cool is it like the, the relationship side of this story, getting to learn what Matt and Paige's dynamic is like and how much she had a hand in this? Yeah, that was another really unexpected part of this story was we often hear um, guys kind of credit their wives or say she stuck with me, but we never really hear so much about the hands-on aspect. Mm -hmm. And as I get into it in my story, they have a secret language. Paige basically gave up her career. She was a softball coach for him to be able to travel around with him, to be able to live this lifestyle. And she's able to, as you said, stand in. She's able to catch early on in the offseason for him. And she's able to critique him in a way that most wives and girlfriends and spouses really can't. And I think that she's probably the closest thing that he's had to a consistent coach over the course of his career. Huh, that's a... Uh... I get it. It's like um, it would be like one of us marrying an editor or something like that. Uh, that's just constant feedback. Um, no, it's great. It, it was such a cool part of the story uh, and getting to know her a little bit and um, their connection there. That part was great. Um, when, when you dive into a story like this, I know it's not going to be 100% or 0%, but are you a believer that once something clicks for someone who's had such a journey that – there's like a, a momentum to Matt Gage's story where that can help, you know, not maybe not uh, help him strike out more guys, but the level of adversity he's been through, the level of self-discovery he's had to be through. Like, are you a believer that, that that kind of thing can carry momentum forward in a guy's career? I do. And actually, I spoke to Blue Jays coach Matt Bushman, and he pointed that out. He said, I don't know if, it's ingrained in him already, or if it was the road that got him here, but 
he's not a guy who seems overwhelmed on the mound, even when things aren't going well. He's not in awe of anything at the big league level. He called it a steady heartbeat, hmm. and he thinks that a lot of it is because of what Gage went through just to get here. Right. It's uh, It makes sense, right? If you've if you've been down in the, the Mexican league, like away from family, not knowing what the rest of your career is like, is is a 3-0 count really going to make you sweat that much? Um, <laughs> you've seen worse. So I, I'm curious, on the actual side of how he went through changing the mechanics and, and you know measuring the velocity spike and things like that, I would imagine that access to you know, date, we'll, we'll call it analytics for lack of a more specific term, but um, data and feedback on what he was doing was an important part of that. How big an advantage can that be for players who are willing to experiment and push outside their comfort zone? Yeah, I think it's huge. And I think having the Blue Jays be a team that really has embraced the data and the analytics is a big reason why he chose to sign there as a winner because he hadn't really been exposed to any of that. Then he goes to Arizona, and they kind of show him his metrics for the first time and how to use them, and he pitches really well. And a lot of teams this winter wanted to sign him, but it was the Blue Jays who said, this is what we want you to do. These are the tools we have to help you get here. And I think that's ultimately what set Toronto apart. That's great. Um, I'm, it's We hear way more on the pitching side when it comes to stuff like that um i know you you actually retweeted and um i i had read it as well uh hannah kaiser had a piece at yahoo about well how do the how do the hitters adjust to this and it's it's trying to create these pitching machines that can better simulate um what the what the the modern pitcher is doing so i'm really looking forward to you know your story next year of the 30 year old rookie on the hitter side who cracks the jays roster because he's been um, working through all that stuff. I got to say, I, I do personally, and as a fan of your work, I do feel like more Blue Jays stories from you I should come, but I, I hope are coming because you've covered, I think, every other team in the AL East. Have you not? <laughs> um, oh, no not Red, Red Sox. Sox. But yeah, you're right. Huh. What is it yeah. about us? You don't, you don't want to come spend a... Spend a year on, on exchange or whatever we'd call it for writing with the Jays? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're such an interesting team. And I think a lot of people expected the American League East to be a little bit closer. I expected I would write about Toronto a lot more. I think the Yankees have stolen a lot of the spotlight with what they've done. They have. It's been ridiculous. And, um, you know, I, I hope we I hope we get to enjoy more 16 hitless inning streaks in the uh <laughs> in the coming weeks so it can get a little tighter there. Um, when you look at the AL East, though, the, the Sox, Jays, and Rays would all be in the three wildcard spots if the season ended today. When you think back to Major League Baseball expanding the playoff format, yeah, it's a lot about expanded TV revenue, but do you think something like the AL East holding four of the six playoff spots is good for this new format to, to kind of get it off the ground? Is it good for the league, or, or is this just kind of highlighting how imbalanced things are. Yeah, I mean, I think you could make the case for both. Having, as you said, been in the American League East, cover teams in the American League East, it's always such a tough division. But if you're a third-place team in the American League East, you can very often win the AL Central or, you know, the NL Central. Um, and so I don't think that part is fair. 
I think expanding the playoffs to include some of these teams, because the fact that every team but the Orioles is above 500 is insane. So <laughs> knowing that you're not just competing for that one wild card spot, that you have a chance to get in a better chance, I think is helpful. But I'm a fan of just obliterating all of the divisions. Yes. And doing 15 AL, 15 NL, and all playing each other. But that's my, like, commissioner for a day idea. Yeah, I, lo- I love that, too. We Take it a step further. Go full soccer style, and it's just one big table. Um, I'm all right with it. At least we're getting to a more balanced schedule. Um, Britt, you mentioned that every team in the AL East other than the Orioles. I know that that's a team that you know pretty well, too. Uh, are you starting to feel the momentum picking up with, with, you know, maybe not for this year, but where the Orioles are headed after the last few years? I think so. I think 2024 is going to really be the year for them. Okay. You're going to see, like this year, guys come up and debut probably a little bit next year as well. And I think 2024 is really going to be the year where you're going to expect them to win. And we're going to expect ownership to spend. That's the question mark here. Teams are tanking, they're rebuilding, but there's not always that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Ownership is going to have to spend. If you really want to replicate Houston, Jim Crane and that ownership group has gone out and spent money on players. The Orioles are not going to be in a position to not spend and compete in the American League East. Yeah, no no one can except the Rays, and and even that is some sort of magic that I we all haven't figured out yet. Um, when you look at the Orioles' success, and, and this is... Jays related because I know you found something pretty interesting in the Jays broadcast yesterday, Caleb Joseph talking about um, Kevin Gosman. And, you know, this kind of circles back to the Matt Gage thing of experimenting and, and going outside your comfort zone. But the Orioles weren't willing to let Gosman pitch like anything other than a standard pitcher. And Caleb kind of highlighted that as someone who covered the Orioles for, for a long time, what do you what do you make of that? Why was that such an interesting nugget for you? Yeah, I think first of all, Caleb does a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's great to cover as a player. He's a great analyst. I think his future on TV is just going to continue as we go forward here. But I think the Orioles, it was well documented, were very behind in analytics. They mm-hmm. really didn't have an analytics department. They didn't do anything in terms of international scouting with the previous regime. And the teams that were late, like them, paid for it. And you look at the guys that they weren't able to have success there. Jay Carrietta, who won a Cy Young in Chicago. Obviously, Kevin Gossman. Dylan Bundy is another name. I mean, they really struggled to develop pitching. And you wonder, when you listen to Caleb and other people talk, how much of that had to do with their inability to recognize what they had and to use the numbers and use the data. I mean, teams now are all using it. It's less of an advantage than it was. But you do wonder how many guys' careers would have been very altered had they went in and used that data, had they used that analytics, had they told Kevin Goffman, let's pitch to your strengths and not try to put you in this tiny box. It would be, I mean, this is the the tough part about things is we don't get the control group or can't run both. I, I still... Probably the most shameful thing about me as a baseball fan or baseball analyst, whatever you want to call it, like the light will never go out for me for Dylan Bundy. Like I'm still expecting him to be an ace at some point. Uh, back as far as like 2016 spring training, I, I went to a couple Orioles games and wrote about him for fan graphs. And it's just, I'm, I'm never going to give it up. So, I mean, that would be the one kind of 
that would be just one more thing of, hey, that, that era of the Orioles um, was missing some things. Have they, to your knowledge, addressed a lot of those things that, that to where like they're, they're in a better position to take advantage of those kind of things as this young core gets competition ready? I think so. I think hiring Mike Elias, mm-hmm. who came from Houston, was a big part of that. They've really embraced and beefed up their analytics department. And they have finally decided to get into the international scouting game, which was another huge hole when you think about all the young stars who are Latin players. So I think that they are moving in the right direction. They're investing in the right things. But, again, it's going to come down to when they finally get to that peak, when these young guys are here and they're ready to compete, are they going to go all in? Are they going to be able to go toe-to-toe? with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Blue Jays. That really remains the big question. It is. It's a question the Jays were in that spot, you know, two years ago when we kind of came out of the pandemic is now the time they make the Ryu move that kind of signals it. And they're still kind of in this, not holding space, but we're waiting for the the big step forward. Maybe that happens later this year. Um, Britt, one more before I let you go. I, I know you're, I know you do everything MLB, but this conversation has been ALE specific. So, Toronto Blue Jays between now and the deadline. This is a fun team that I imagine you would like to see in the playoffs. What is the one thing that you'd like them to most address between now and the deadline? Hmm. I think they probably need like a real power arm late in the bullpen. Mm -hmm. I know the rotation has been a little inconsistent, but I think everyone this winter looked at this lineup and looked at this roster went healthy and said, the Blue Jays are going to be there. So, to me, you don't do too much changing and tweaking. You hope that they get healthy. You hope the team stays healthy. And then you really add, like, that late-inning scary arm because I think that can make a huge difference in these games in September. Well, I'm looking forward. I hope that happens. I'm looking forward to Caitlin McGrath's write-up about it when it does happen at The Athletic. I'm looking forward to all your coverage for the rest of the season, Britt. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And can't say enough kind words about that Matt Gage feature. I, I Really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Richard Rowley, senior MLB writer at The Athletic, analyst, radio host. It's a lot of jobs. She does a, a great job at all of them. We got a little update for you, and it's not a good one. Wah, wah. Nate Pearson has been shut down for three to four weeks with a lat strain. He'll be reevaluated after that to see if he can start playing catch again. Yeah, Nate Pearson <laughs> shut down again. Uh, at least you don't have to take him off the 60-day IL to clear a 40-man spot. I guess there's some sort of non-silver, silver lining there. The Nate Pearson saga, the Nate Pearson career path is just depressing at this point. Hope a quick recovery for him. Don't know uh, that a right lat strain is a minor thing. For a pitcher to come back from midseason when he was already just trying to ramp up from mononucleosis, from injuries prior to that last year, it's been a tough road. Chai Davidi also tells us that Sergio Romo will undergo a physical tonight, uh, so the earliest he'll be active is tomorrow. As I mentioned earlier, uh, got a look at his bullpen session a little earlier today. Jose Brios also taking it in. Makes me wonder if they're pals. Uh, so those are your updates they're not great ones i wish i had better ones for you nate pearson three to four weeks 
before he can be evaluated to maybe play catch. That sounds like me talking about getting back in the gym post-pandemic. Yeah, I'll give it three to four weeks, and then I'll evaluate if I'm feeling up to doing some very light stuff. Much lower stakes for me. High stakes for Nate Pearson. I I think you kind of, at this point, have to move forward where anything you were to get from Nate Pearson is just bonus. It's just not reasonable, I don't think, at this point to factor him into later in the year bullpen or next year's bullpen or a future rotation. It's just, I, I think at this point, you put him not out of mind because you're still taking care of him and trying to get him right. But if you're a Jays fan, he's no longer in the mix. I can't imagine there's much, much prospect value left on him in trade when he's pitched so infrequently the last little bit. Uh, and I just don't think reliably you can expect much from him until you start to see it. We'll tee up tonight's game. The people who are able to play, uh, again, I read the lineups out a little earlier, but we'll, we'll tee it up and we'll get into some of the matchup data uh, in just a little bit here. But when we come back, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic uh, wrote a great piece on Yusei Kikuchi's situation and has a big feature coming up on a fan favorite. We'll talk to her about that next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A couple hours out from game two of the series between the Jays and the Red Sox. Ross Stripling against Michael Waka. 707, Ben Wagner's got you for first pitch on the Rogers Sportsnet Radio Network. What was that one? I don't I can't place that one. Uh all right. <laughs> That's hey, waka waka. <laughs> ah, waka waka waka. Derek's going wild behind the glass. Derek's on going wild with the Fozzie Bear but behind the, the glass there. Um let's uh let's pivot to someone uh, a little more serious. Uh but no less fun. Caitlin McGrath of the Athletic. Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for the sound effects. Yeah, it's. Uh, I wasn't expecting them. I'm sure you weren't expecting them, but now you got them. Perfect. So, Caitlin, uh, before right before you came on here, we got a little Nate Pearson update. Uh, it's it's not good at at this point. Nate Pearson out at least three to four weeks with the right lat strain, and then he'll be reevaluated to see if he can resume playing catch. If you're the Blue Jays at this point, are you just proceeding as if Nate Pearson is not? in the plans and if he gives you anything it's just gravy at that point yeah I think that's how you have to think about it at this point I mean it's very unfortunate for him obviously because they hope that he could be a piece whether it was in a bulk role a bullpen role anything and obviously it's just tough for him because he's had so many injuries over his career it's just unfortunate I don't know what else to say about it I mean he obviously has the talent he obviously has the stuff to get major leaguers out and he just needed innings. He just needed experience. And we're looking at another year where he's really not going to get that. Do you think that someone put a curse on him at some point or he was bad in a past life or I don't know, something, something must've happened. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't. And I don't know, maybe he like walked 
buy some, like, black cats or, like, broke a mirror or something like that. Like, I don't know what happened to Nate Pearson. He's a nice guy. I've talked to him. I, you know, I've, I've interviewed him so many times, and he's so eager to help this team. He's so passionate about the Blue Jays and about baseball and about being the best that he can be. And so I hope to see him next year. Um, and like you said, maybe if there's a bonus, maybe if he can get in some games in September, maybe he can help the Blue Jays a little bit. But at this point, you just have to proceed with he's probably not going to be available. And if he does get healthy and if he does make a quick recovery, I guess, then maybe he can be an option. So when Hyunjin Ryu originally goes down, start looking at ways you could backfill those spots. And Ross Stripling has filled in so, so well. Uh, one of the best ERAs in baseball this month and a sub-three ERA with the component stuff that backs that up. Um, but that opens up a Ross Stripling-sized hole in the bullpen, and some people go, well, wait, maybe Nate Pearson could, could give you some bulk innings. Maybe someone can, can provide depth from AAA, and you can, you can find your way there to not be too pessimistic about the Ryu loss. And then Nate Pearson goes down, and then Yusei Kikuchi is joining them in terms of, well, the performance just isn't there, and it's putting an overtax on the bullpen. So I don't think any of these things in isolation is a killer, but then you look at piling them all on top of each other, and it seems like it's a, a lot of stress on this pitching staff. You had a great piece on the weekend, Blue Jays need a solution to Yusei Kikuchi's pitching woes in the short and long term. Um, that's up at The Athletic, and I, I urge everyone to go check it out because it's going to be a relevant topic until Kikuchi's strung together a few good starts. Uh, short term, Caitlin, what's the move here? Do you have to just keep riding with them? I think so, and you didn't even mention that the Jose Barrios question is something the Blue Jays are also dealing yes. with. Obviously, I wrote that piece before Jose had his start, which didn't go well, and that's been an up-and-down season for him. So you even just think about, sure, the Ryu thing you can manage. And then even with the Kikuchi thing, you think, okay, we could sort of get through this. But then if you're looking at also not having Jose Barrios being effective, then you're looking at, you know, two major pieces of rotation, the beginning and the end of the rotation, not being effective, and you're not getting the length out of those spots. Now, for the Blue Jays, I think with Barrios, because he has that track record, they're just going to keep pitching him, you know, just – put him out there and hopefully he can figure it out. Obviously he took some strides earlier on um, and has hit another bump, but the stuff is there, you know, the stuff is there and you just hope that he can figure it out because of the years and years and years so that he's been an above average durable starter. Kikuchi's not the same because he obviously doesn't quite have the track record and we knew that he was going to be a project coming in and it's just taking a lot of time for some of these changes to take hold. And so what do you do? The question is, it's bad timing right now because the mm -hmm. Blue Jays have to worry about an extra game on Saturday against the Rays. They're playing a doubleheader, and so it's just not as easy as a skippy and a starter because they were already looking for an extra starter this week. So now you're asking them to look for two extra starters. So the last time we asked Charlie about this, he said Kikuchi's scheduled to have his next start. Now, can they do something creative? Can they have an opener? Maybe that's an option. Could they pair him with Castillo? And so you're just telling Kikuchi, you know, we only want you to go through the order once. We're not going to push you. Just, you know, do this, and then Castillo's going to come in after you. Like, maybe they can get creative that way. I'm sort of on the fence. I'm not willing to say that Kikuchi's not going to make his next start, but I also wouldn't be completely surprised if they suddenly say, okay, he's not going to make the start. Um, but I also think just because of the timing of it and because you're worrying about that extra start, you need to fill on Saturday against the Rays. It's just not an easy time to just get the starter. Also not a good time for 
your highest level minor league team to just not have a lot of great starting options for you. The Bisons have already used 17 different starting pitchers this year. Um, we've seen Sean Anderson, Casey Lawrence, uh, Thomas Hatch, Jeremy Beasley. We've seen Max Castillo. We've seen all of those names come up for a little bit and then head back down. Um, I, I guess Meza and Ryu are counted in there on rehab starts, so that doesn't really count. But still, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of pitchers. You like they're trying to Joe Biagini and Derek Holland. Sometimes it's not like there's depth there. Um, have they given any indication of? Not even just Kikuchi's day, but what the plan would be on Saturday. Like, is it just a? It's one guy is going to start, and then it's a. I guess it would be a Stripling would start one, right? No. Barrios would start. Who would? I'm losing my mind. Do we know who would start the extra game on Saturday, Caitlin? Sorry, this is you don't come back from a weekend off and without <laughs> some rust. The extra game is kind of still being figured out as far okay. as I understand it. I think Thomas Hatch is a candidate. You just mentioned him a few seconds ago. Okay. Um, Castillo would be a candidate. I guess it sort of depends on what happens on Thursday, whether they use him in that Kikuchi outing. Um, and then also Casey Lawrence is probably an option as well. Um, I think those are the names that stand out to me. Um, I, I, I would say if Castillo doesn't get used on Thursday, they don't have to use him. Maybe he's the best candidate because he's here. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make a roster move with Hatch. But if they have to use Castillo, then they may have to turn to a guy like Hatch, who has made spot starts in this past. So it's not a completely unknown to him. Um, but all, he's kind of been so-so at AAA. So that's, you know, it's a tough ask as well. Yeah, and you do get the extra roster spot for a day, a doubleheader right. day. But... Yeah, I do think, I think probably the best thing we can do to figure this out is see who starts today and tomorrow for Buffalo and by process of elimination, see who who had their start skipped or, or cut short or something like that. Um, because, yeah, that might give us a hint as well. All right, Caitlin. So that's the short term for figuring out the Kikuchi thing. Long term, they signed him for three years. This was always going to be a multi-year commitment and a multi-year project. Has the confidence wavered in turning Kikuchi eventually into a better version of himself? Like, like I think back to the Robbie Ray thing, and he had some ups and downs before he really figured it out. Are, are they trusting that this is all part of the process of getting him to a higher level, or is there some from frustration and concern on the team side? I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of frustration because it's always affirmable for things hmm. to just go smoothly. Um, and obviously this is a season where they're trying to compete and they're not a rebuilding team and they're you know they're not they're not just throwing guys out there to just do their best or whatever like they uh want to have their best starters out there and so i'm sure that it's frustrating for them but i also think that they were well aware that this would take some time i mean they necessarily wouldn't have signed him to three years if they didn't think it would take time and they wouldn't have signed him three years if they didn't think that it would pan out in the long run it's a complicated situation, obviously. You know, Kikuchi is making a lot of money. You can't just necessarily, like, auction this guy or, you know, throw him around or just send him to the bullpen. Like, you know, he, he's kind of earned the right to be a starter or kind of paying him like a starter. And so it's also a delicate situation as well. Um, they have they said the other day, Charlie said the other day, they haven't even talked to him about a bullpen role. So that, to me, suggests that there's still optimism that they can work through this and they can get through this. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they sort of un- 
understood that this would be an up and down year because that's kind of been the pattern for him. And as you say, Robbie Ray had a lot of time. I think when we think back on the situation, it feels like it happened overnight because like 2021 was such an incredible season for him. But he obviously was with the Blue Jays for 2020. He spent an, basically an entire offseason with within the Blue Jays system because he signed so quickly after that 2020 season. So there was a long time that he was working um, toward that goal of, you know, changing some of his tactics on the mound and getting stronger and all these different things that he did last year. And so Kikuchi hasn't had that long runway yet. And so they need to be patient, but of course they, you know, want to have better results. They're frustrated. You can hear the frustration in Charlie's voice sometimes when he talks about it. I think it's because they know how good he can be, but it's getting him there and it's getting him there consistently. So we look ahead to tonight and Ross Stripling's on the mound Caitlin, where would this team and this pitching staff and this bullpen be without what Ross Stripling's given them this last month? Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been a godsend for them, honestly. I don't know where they would be. They would probably not be where they are right now, I guess. Um, The thing that's interesting is, too, is we always think of, like, Stripling as this swingman, right? Like, this guy that can go back and forth between the, the starting role and the bullpen role, and of course he can do that. We've seen him do that a little bit. But if we look back at his Jays tenure, at this point he spent more time as a starter than he has ever in the bullpen. He was a starter for them for like about half the season last year, and for a good chunk of that he was one of their better starters to the point that I remember at one point last season sort of wondering like who like who's going to come out of the rotation because Stephen Mass and Ross Stripling were both pitching like really, really well, and then Stripling ended up getting hurt, and so that kind of just worked itself out. Um, and he didn't sort of have the end to the season that he wanted, but he's looked great. He looks like he's really just like carried on as that, um, that stretch of the season where he looked really good last year. And so, yeah, no, he's, he's a major league caliber starter. And I think that's the thing. Like I've talked to Pete Walker before and he said that, like the only reason he wasn't starting for the blue Jays was because they didn't want to use a six man rotation. Um, and there was not a role for him, but he has the stuff. Um, kind of a creative guy, throws the kitchen sink, as he likes mm. to say it, at um, the guys that he's facing, and he, he gets out. Yeah, I've heard of weighted baseballs, but throwing a whole kitchen sink seems uh, <laughs> seems like a bit much, Caitlin, a bit reckless. Um, so when you look at what Stripling's been able to accomplish and how taxed the Jays' bullpen has been with a lot of these short starts, and I'm not advocating for this, I'm just curious as to your take on it do you think at any point we see them give stripling the green light to face teams a third time through a little more i i know he he got deeper into the third time through the order in his last start um the red Sox and the yankees and teams like that are maybe a little different uh do they start to extend him into the the, the sixth the seventh more regularly if he continues to pitch this well well i do wonder if it's just sort of like a if the, the game will tell them what to do. So mm-hmm. if he's pitched five innings, but they've been, you know, hard innings, you know, he's working through traffic on the bases, all these types of things, or it's long at bats, the way that you saw, like, the Yankees face them, they just were fouling off a ton of pitches. So in those situations, the game kind of tells you how long he's going to go because those innings are more taxing than how he looked at against the White Sox, I guess, where he was kind of cruising for some of those innings, um, getting quick outs. Obviously, Matt Chapman was doing him a lot of favors out there on third base. So I think that those decisions are sort of case-by-case, game-by-game. But I do think that, obviously, he's pitching more and he's getting closer to, like, a regular starter's workload. And I think that 
you will see them let him go a third time through if things are going smoothly for him and things are going well. But of course, if they're seeing teams are seeing him better, if there's, you know, there's signs that they're kind of tracking his pitches better, then maybe they're going to pull back. Because obviously, um, I mean, today's a good situation. Kevin Gosman did their bullpen a huge favor yesterday, pitching seven innings. So they should be fairly rested today. At least your core guys should be rested. Um, and so hopefully, like, you still get a solid six innings at least from Stripling, and then maybe they can piece the rest together. With tomorrow, I mean, tomorrow's Alec Manoa, and it's against, I know Nick Pavetta's Canadian, and people maybe won't want to see him get touched up, and he's having such a good year. But I, I think you, anytime Manoa's starting right now, you like your chances. And they win game one of this series, you'd, you'd like their chances in a game three with, with Manoa on the mound. How big does this series feel to you? And not to get ahead of it, but, you know, say Stripling gives you enough tonight and, and you take the second one, you know, the Jays have lost the ground to the Red Sox. They're a half game behind them right now as as these three teams jockey for wildcard position. Um, I guess just just how big does this series feel to you as far as a late June series coming off of the disappointing series against the Yankees coming off of you haven't won a series since that Tigers series now. Yeah, I think it feels big for me. And I've written this a couple times now is more just like to make a statement for the Blue Jays to show like, no, we're still here. We're as good as you guys, or we're better than you guys. We're the, you know, we're the team that's chasing the Yankees still. Like, I think it was, this is a series that's important for them to just compete with the Red Sox. And of course, when Tampa comes in, um, to show that they're right there with them, if not ahead of them. So in terms of, like, the standings, like, I just look at the season. There's still a half season left. Like, so much can happen. Like, teams can go on runs in the second half. This Blue Jays team, to me, they seem like kind of a second-half team. Maybe that's a little bit of, like, what they did last year, but it just feels like they could be that type of team. So there's still so much season to be played that I don't pay too much attention to, like, the standings outcome of this series, although obviously you can look at it. And like you say, the Red Sox are a game ahead. So the Blue Jays could leapfrog them essentially if they are able to win this series or, or I guess sweep them. Um, and then Tampa's coming in too, and they want to give themselves some distance against them as well. But I think more than just the standings thing, it's just the Blue Jays looking like the sort of contender that they, they believe that they are. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, now that I think of it, the Rays series is so far. Well, if you could just take three out of five against the Rays this weekend, uh, going to be a weird one to contextualize. Um, Caitlin, you've done a, I mean, everyone knows this anyway. You've done such a great job uh, over the last forever. Um, I was trying to say recent, recently, uh, but it was coming out of my mouth backhanded. Uh, you're, you're obviously very great at your job, but I'm very much looking forward to your next big feature dive. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about what's coming, but uh, here's your opportunity to tease it or, or promote it ahead of time. Yeah, well, I have a story coming out. should come out tomorrow as long as I get all my edits in <laughs> after I hang up. Um, for, uh, it's about Santiago Espinal. So it's just a, I don't know, I don't want to spoil it too much either, but it's just kind of the background story. He has a really great story um, just of, him basically taking opportunities that were given to him small small cracks of doors were open for him and he busted through them um and so he's just at the high school level at the college level um he was obviously drafted by the red sox and then he was traded with the blue jays and so 
sort of at every level of his career, he was able to really stand out and make the most of an opportunity. And along the way, there's a lot of people that have helped him and have been impactful for him. And so it's just going to give you a little bit of a taste of Santiago, how he got here and um, just kind of a bit into a window into who he is a person, I think. So Kikuchi trouble on the weekend, Espinal fun fan favorite, lovable story tomorrow what is the date that you're first expecting to have to write Jay's trade for player X? Yeah, I was thinking about that because I think like today or around this time was actually when they traded for Adam Simber last year. Mm-hmm. So um, it's probably going to be coming. I would think that this trade deadline maybe will drag a little later just because of the extra playoff spot. So more teams are maybe going to take some more time to decide if they're true buyers or sellers. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't start happening until like mid-July. Um, and obviously a flurry will happen at the end of the month and when the trade deadline is August 2nd. Um, but I would say I would bet on like mid-July maybe would be the earliest that I think I'll be pounding out some Blue Jays traded for X, X reliever. Well, I hope uh... – I hope it's soon. I hope it's meaningful, and I look forward to uh, reading it. Really excited for the Santiago Espinal feature tomorrow, Caitlin. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic, who didn't yell at me for tripping over uh, trying to compliment uh, all her great work at The Athletic. Athletic double dip today with Britt Giroli and and Caitlin McGrath. Um, So keep an eye out for Caitlin's Espinal feature tomorrow. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, Espinal is a very easy guy to root for in the windows that the broadcasts or or radio hits and TV hits have allowed us to get to know him. Seems like an easy guy to root for. Not seems like. He is an easy guy to root for. And I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about his story and his journey from Caitlin tomorrow. We have some text in the text line still. 595-90. Um, it's a lot of Nate Pearson talk. If you missed it, Nate Pearson's being shut down for three to four weeks with a right lat strain. And then he'll be reevaluated to see if he can start playing catch. It's more or less a lost season, it feels like. It's hard to imagine Pearson, like maybe you're talking there's a September role for him or something like that. But if he's, you know, that timeline puts him Late July, he's starting to play catch again. He had still been building up from having mononucleosis earlier in the year. He was coming off injury last year. You look at his player page, pick your site. And so he was drafted in 2017. Had just 20 innings that year after he turns pro. That's fine. It's your first year pro. So it was one and two thirds innings in 2018. 2019, he actually picks up some momentum, pitches across three levels and ends at AAA, throws over just over 100 innings, 101.2. That's when you start really thinking about him as a prospect of what his timeline's like. 2020, pitches 18 innings with the Jays. That's the pandemic shortened year. Uh, last year, he throws 45 and two-thirds innings across AAA and the majors. This year so far, seven and two-thirds innings. That is not a lot of innings. It's really hard to know what to expect from Nate Pearson and even know what's best for Nate Pearson when 
he eventually is able to pitch again. I think if you're the Blue Jays, and there are a lot of texts in the text line to this effect, I don't know that you have to move on necessarily, as Colin and Bolton says, but I certainly think you have to proceed forward as if he's not in the plans. I just don't think you can reliably consider him, you know, a prospect anymore, a potential starter depth or, or even bullpen depth right now. Uh, until you see it, you gotta, I think, just consider gravy, which is really disappointing. He was a very exciting prospect. Still is if he can figure it out, but you'd have to imagine all this time off is going to take a physical toll and it's, uh, you know, his velocity already wasn't back to where it was before. And he was such a velocity dependent guy for a while there. Um, Maybe this all makes him learn, helps him learn how to pitch instead of just throw as the, as the old heads might say, Um, but not great. It's really, it's disappointing for a good guy who also has great taste in shoes. Not that that really matters, but it's another thing to like about him. Uh, Oh boy. There's a lot coming in about uh, the Senate judiciary committee, taking a look at MLB's hundred year old antitrust exemption. I won't get into it here because we've only got a couple minutes left and it's a, it's a lot to sort through, but it's something that's overdue a little bit as we look at the treatment of minor leaguers in baseball uh, and their inability to earn a living wage. Someone on the text line said Nate did it to himself. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't think he intentionally got mono or intentionally strained his lat or intentionally hurt his groin last year. Unless there's some, something we don't know about. I don't know. I don't think he's out there getting hurt on purpose. All right. So tonight, the Jays will face Michael Walker. Ross Stripling's on the hill for the Jays. Here's a skinny on Walker. 234 ERA. That's great, right? Ton of red flags. The component metrics suggest an ERA of, uh, of around four, maybe even a little higher. He has a swinging strike rate under 9%. The only real thing in his profile saying, yeah, this guy's going to continue to be good is he has a low hard hit rate. That's important to not have your pitches hammered with frequency. But you know what happens when you allow a lot of balls in play and your hard hit rate, your, your batted ball data is good, but not elite. You're going to get hit hard sometimes. And it's coming for Michael Walker at some point, maybe not tonight. He throws a 93 mile an hour fastball, 33% of the time. That's been the pitch he's been luckiest on. Maybe there's some deception to it. Maybe he's tunneling really well right now with all his other pitches, but there is a massive gap between the actual slugging percentage against his fastball and the expected slugging percentage based on batted ball data. The Jays are very good at hitting sub 95 fastballs and that fastball does not miss bats. People don't swing and miss it around 10% of the time, which is very low. Uh, In addition to the fastball, Throw a change up 32% of the time. He'll throw that to both-handed hitters, uh, eight miles an hour of separation from the fastball, and it's a it's a good changeup. That's his, his number one swing and miss pitch. He'll also throw a sinker and a cutter to righties. The sinker is elite when it comes to generating poor contact. Uh, he'll locate it inside, and it's a lot of not great stuff coming from it, um, but he won't throw it to lefties, and he doesn't throw it a ton. The cutter's been hammered to the extent that I don't know that we'll see it a ton tonight. And then he throws a curveball to lefties as his third pitch, uh, but the results have not been very good. Only scattered experience against Waka for the Jays. 56 plate appearances as a team, 339 expected weighted on base average. 
So what we'd expect based on the the strikeouts, the walks, and, and the batted ball stuff. Um, Bo's been really good against him. Lourdes Gurriel struggled. Everyone else's mixed results are, are nothing that really stands out, and all in small sample sizes. Again, the Jays line up like this for this one. George Springer at DH, Bobachet, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Teoscar Hernandez back in the cleanup spot with Alejandro Kirk getting the day off. Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hits fifth. Matt Chapman sixth. Santiago Espinal, Gabriel Moreno, Catches Russ Stripling and hits eighth. Rymel Tapia, the lone lefty in the lineup, hits ninth and plays center field. The Red Sox will throw three lefties up against Ross Stripling. They line up as follows. Rob Snyder, Rafael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Sander Bogarts, Alex Verdugo, Trevor Story, Christian Vasquez, Reg Cordero, and Christian Arroyo. Stripling, of course, has been very, very good lately. 281 ERA on the season as a starter, and the component metrics back it up. His walk rate is elite. He also has an elite chase rate. What that means is he generates a lot of swings on pitches outside of the zone. He lives on the edge really effectively. And a lot of that is he throws five pitches and he'll locate them all over the place. He mixes speed and break and location. And that unpredictability keeps guys off balance and can lead to some light contact. Uh, 101 plate appearances for this version of the Sox against Ross Stripling. 322 expected weighted on base average. So not too bad. And nobody really stands out uh, too much in the individual sample. So that's your matchup for tonight. I don't know. It feels like a Michael Walker. Uh, it, it's regression time. It's it's a lot of skating by without missing bats and, and without waka, waka, waka. without uh, elite con- good but not elite contact profile stuff. Um, the Jays are minus one forty favorites. Maybe feels a little bit big. Uh, for a stripling Waka matchup. But the Jays' bullpen's rested. They only had to use two arms yesterday. Uh, the Red Sox had to use four. Neither team had to use their, you know, highest-end relievers because it wasn't a wasn't a particularly close game. Um, so maybe that comes out in the wash for you. But minus 140 favorites is notable. The over-under was at 9.5. It's gone down to 9 flat. So that's what you're looking at for tonight. Uh, ben Wagner has a call for you. First pitch at 7.07 on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I want to thank Chris Black for coming on earlier. Rich Aroli, our pal Caitlin McGrath. Uh, thank you to Derek behind the glass for all those drops for the explain it black. What a job Derek's doing. And it was Blake Murphy Tuesdays on the Raptor show. It's, it's, Derek's my personal guy back there. Thanks to JR uh, as well. And thank you to you guys, the listeners. We'll be back tomorrow, 3 o'clock. Uh, again, Ben Wagner, Caleb Joseph on the call tonight or watch it on Sportsnet. Oh, and Alec Manoa's Manoa's on uh, Tim and Friends tonight. So check that out before the game as well. Uh, I'm Blake Murphy. I'm back tomorrow on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan.